Welcome to Bible study. This is Nick Krita, your host. I'm very happy to be with you again. And I'd like to introduce uh, our panel before we start the discussion on this interesting Bible study again about uh, the churches in Revelation and the messages to each one of them. Our panel today is a full house here, and thank you everyone for uh, coming, but I'd like to introduce, uh, starting with uh, Harvey on the other side. Harvey, thank you for coming with us. Thanks, Nick. Greeting, listeners. And Ken, good to have you with us also. Thank you, Nick. Great to be here. And Len. Yes, hello, listeners. I was just going to say you are on a different uh, seat now, but uh, thank you for joining us anyway. It's a pleasure to be on the other seat today. Helen, I will just pass the microphone right to you now. Thank you. It's a delight to be here and to um, study and be back with the panel. This um, time we're doing a a study on the book of Revelation and it is actually a thrilling account of Jesus' plan for our world and for the heavenly home that he's preparing for us. It's a revelation of Jesus and the events that will characterize his soon coming. I find it's actually a thrilling book to read, to study, to decode and, and to cherish because for me, and I hope for you also, it is real, it is relevant, it is a vital read for the world today. So we're going to have prayer before we open the study because we certainly need the Holy Spirit to guide and lead us today. Thank you, Len. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your holy word and see what messages are for us and see what this reveals about Jesus Christ, our Saviour. I pray today as we go through this study that this might help the listeners understand your word better and to see that there is a message for us in this day and age. So we invite the Holy Spirit to lead us and our listeners, and we pray this in and through the worthy name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Len. Well, we've got quite a lot to uh, get through today, but the first three chapters of this book, Revelation, addresses the struggles of the churches in John's day. There are seven different messages to seven different churches. And so the first question I'm going to ask is, what does the number seven indicate? Numbers actually have special meanings. The number seven means completeness. So this is a complete message that was delivered to those churches. Thank you, Len. Well, was each message for that individual church only? Well, no, it wasn't because this um, document that was given by God to John was to be read in all of those seven churches, but there's more. The message has an historical setting for those churches. It also has a prophetic setting, as we'll discuss as we go through today, And it also applies individually. So, no, the message wasn't just for those churches. It was a worldwide message presented in a package that looks like it refers to those seven churches. Yeah, thank you. In in John's day, though, was it just the individual churches also that were to hear this message? I think there's a text in Revelation 3, 6. Perhaps someone can read that that will give us the clue. Well, I'll read it since I've already been talking here. The verse says, and it's actually repeated right through Revelation 3, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, before we go on, 
is an interesting thing. This verse I just read says, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But as you read through this section, for example, the next verse, part of it, these are the words of him who is holy and true, referring to another member of the Godhead. So when we see that little bit, this is the message that the Spirit has for the churches, or let him hear what the Spirit has for the churches. It's not just the Spirit, but it's the Father and Son involved also. And that word is churches, isn't it? Plural. Plural yes. one, thank you. So as we go through and analyse the messages, we will find that Jesus was able to meet the needs of each church, regardless of their situation. And surely that will give us hope that he can meet our needs today as well. If we were to do a side-by-side comparison of these seven messages, we would see that they follow the same six-fold structure. And hopefully we can do that today. I like to use a whiteboard, but um, on radio it's a bit hard for you to see. (laughs) So you'll have to imagine that. But each opens with Jesus addressing the specific church by name. So my question, what are the names of the seven churches? The first one we actually dealt with last week. There are seven churches, and if we looked on a map to see where those seven churches existed, they're in Asia Minor, and if you started at one, you could go around in almost a, a circle because they are on... You could go from one to the other and end up back where you started. But we had last week, we mentioned Ephesus, and that was the first of the seven churches. Then we have six more. There is Smyrna, Pergamos... Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And we'll talk about those churches today. Great. But the names of those seven churches are typical of the churches as a whole, but they're also symbolic of the church in different periods of the Christian era. Uh, For example, if we were to look at some of them, and this is not a time prophecy, but it relates to the eras that have passed. Ephesus, roughly AD 31 to 100. Smyrna, 100 to 313, which was the age of martyrdom. Pergamon, AD 313 to 538. Thyatira, A.D. 538 to 1565, known as the Dark Ages. Sardis, 1565 to 1750. Philadelphia, 1750 to 1844. And Laodicea, 1844 to the end. Now, they're able to look into history and see how the messages have actually linked up with those time periods, with those churches, which is very, very interesting. So Jesus then introduced himself to each church using descriptions and symbols found in chapter 1. So as we dealt with Ephesus, the last study, we commenced today with Smyrna. Jesus was known to Smyrna as what? Well, uh, we find that answer in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, which says this. John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand at me and said, Do not be afraid. I, and here we have this identification, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Well, I think we could easily identify him as Jesus Christ. Mm. And I think Revelation 2.8 also mentions it directly as well, doesn't it, Len? Have you got that there? 
Revelation 2.8. Yes, I can read that. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. It's Jesus. He is the first, he is the last, dead, alive. I read a statement that said... He is a believer's brother and friend. He must be rich in the deepest poverty, honourable amidst the lowest humiliation and happy under the heaviest tribulation, like the Church of Smyrna. So he could he could um, relate and they could relate to what was being said. Okay, so let's move on the next one to Pergamon. He, what was he known as? Reading from the King James Version, chapter 2 and verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamon write, These things saith he, which has the sharp sword with two edges. What does a sharp sword with two edges mean? Usually in scripture, when there's a sword indicated, it represents judgment. So there is a judgmental aspect to the message to the seven churches. Mm. When I was looking at this text, it reminded me of the Garden of Eden where the angel um, had that sword, wasn't it? when they, Adam and Eve were put out of the Garden of Eden, symbolic of Christ's authority to judge and especially of his power to execute judgment. As you said, an instrument of the divine judgment. Okay, so to Thyatira, who, what was he known as? Well, we find the answer to that in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 18. These are the words of the Son of God. <clears throat> now we've already de- identified him earlier whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. It was the Son of God. But remember when we studied last week, there were all these descriptions of this being amongst the lampstand, and these descriptions were also given back there, and they have special significance. Yes, they do. I, I was fascinated when I read this one, and I read, I think it was could have been John Wesley's commentary, he said, eyes like a flame of fire, emphasising the brightness of his countenance and intensity of his gaze, feet polished brass signifying his immense strength, no thought is hidden from him, and he can do all things. And uh, I guess to John, it's hard for us to realise what he actually saw, isn't it? He's doing his best to describe it, and we're doing our best to try and understand it. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Sardis, what was Sardis known as? Well, in Sardis, it says here, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. And here he's talking about the seven spirits of God, which is the Holy Spirit, and the seven stars are the angels that look after the churches. Great. And that was found in Revelation? That's in Revelation 3 and verse 1. Thank you. To Philadelphia he was known as what? I think that's Revelation 3, 7. Three verse 7, yes. Revelation 3, verse <coughs> 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Now this is indi- indicative of the fact that he's got all authority. What he does is totally authoritative. When it says the keys of David, David was a king, so he has like a royal authority. And we speak about Jesus being in the line of David. So he's received all authority. If he shuts, no one can open. If he opens, no one can shut. 
Philadelphia also has a meaning which is a very good meaning. It says the city of brotherly love. And so it sort of indicates what the church period of Philadelphia was like. It was a city, it was brotherly love where people respected, loved each other and really nothing much was said. In fact, nothing was said that was bad about that church. Thanks, Harvey. So we're just going through all those. We've got one more to do on the seven churches, and that's Laodicea. Revelation 3.14 tells us what Jesus was known as. Well, the verse says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. When people use the expression Amen, what do they mean? They simply mean, yes, we agree with this. What you say is true. And the Amen is God's faithful witness, who was, of course, Jesus Christ. Well, thank you, Lynn. So what we've done, just finished doing, is we've looked at how Jesus addresses himself by what name to each of those churches and there's a comparison there so we're going to move on to the next section and we're going to talk about the situation of the churches and what warning did jesus give so let's start off again with smyrna because we dealt with (coughs) ephesus last week so let's have a look at revelation 2 9 and 10 if someone could read that please okay again we're reading from king james version chapter 2 of revelation verse 9 and 10 I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of these things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Well, there's quite a bit in that one, isn't there? Certainly. You know, the church in that city struggled against two hostile forces. There was a Jewish population that strongly opposed Christianity and a non-Jewish population that was loyal to Rome and supported emperor worship. Persecution and suffering were inevitable in an environment like that. So to a church facing persecution and death for its faith, emphasis on life in Christ would be especially meaningful. But there was no rebuke. Christ reminded them that they are spiritually they're rich, although it would be intense. It mentioned ten days, which I believe would have been a relatively short period of time. Can someone enlarge on that ten days? Well, I suspect it's not just literal 24-hour days. I think it's prophetic days, which, of course, are years, so it's probably a period of a decade. Mm-hmm. Which is not a short time when you're being persecuted, though, is it? No. Yeah. No. It would have a definite beginning and an end, and but God would always be in complete control. But, you know, they remained faithful. He would give them what? The you're last going to get one. a crown of life. Yeah, a crown of life. Wow. They were also admonished not to fear. Despite the prospect of, of this persecution, they need not be afraid. I find it interesting that in Scripture there is about, what is it, 366 places where it says, don't be afraid or be not afraid, one for every day of the year, including leap year. But there is a text which um, speaks about this, James 1 verse 2. Yes, that's 
My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Count so, it all joy? Yeah, you don't sort of think of trials as being something enjoyable, but uh, Paul did. He said, I count it all joy, really. And he had more trials than, <laughs> than any of us. anybody can imagine, almost. Well, if you look at John sixteen thirty three, perhaps we can find out why we could be joyful in times of fear. Okay. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace in the world. You shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So again, well, this, this is Jesus speaking, mm. and uh, he's just telling people that obviously... Everyone in the world is going to have trials and tribulations, but Jesus, who came to the world as a man, overcame all these trials and tribulations, same as we can. So there's our hope, isn't it? There's Absolutely. the peace, there's the joy. Yeah, Len, did you want to... Of course, there's an application that can be gained from the experience of these churches. And in this case, regarding the Church of Smyrna, uh, we can apply it to us as individuals and I'd like to say this if anybody's experiencing difficult times don't turn away from God instead draw towards God with greater faithfulness and we need to trust God and remember that there is a reward for those who are faithful fantastic thank you for sharing that with us Len Right, let's move on to the next church. What was the situation of the church in Pergamum and what warning does Jesus give? Um, and I think that's in Revelation 2, 13 to 16. Yes, Revelation 2, 13 to 16 says this, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Okay, there's a few things in there, but let, just tell me, he mentions the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Who were the Nicolaitans? Well, the Nicolaitans, they were a bit of a bad bunch. They were supposedly religious, but they believed that in their religious life they were free to practice various things which God looked down on. First of all was idolatry, which is the worship of idols. And the second was sexual immorality. Now, we mentioned this last week. And within their belief... You know how that many Christians say, well, as Christians we are forgiven, we are free, therefore we can basically do what we like because we'll be forgiven. And I think this same thing was occurring back then. They thought, well, we, are, we can be forgiven, we are free, therefore they practiced this sexual immorality which took the form of ritualistic sex. 
and I don't know how it was practiced, and I don't really want to know. But it's but something it, that God hates. Well, well he says the that there. He said, "Which thing I hate." Part of the Ten mm. Commandments says, "No, we've got to be faithful in our sexual relations." Mm-hmm. Wow! So there came a warning on that one too, and the warning was. I think the warning was that uh, they were surrounded by worship of Satan and the Roman Emperor's God. The church at Pergamon refused to renounce its faith even when Satan's worshippers murdered one of its members. Standing firm against the strong pressures of the temptations of society is never easy, but the alternative is deadly. Okay, so thank you for that. But just let me just step back a little bit. They, there was a, a mention of a sort of judgment. There was, they were told to repent, weren't they? Yep. Repent, that was a very important word needed to come in. Repent or else there would be a sort of judgment. And, wh- and what you're saying is very, very true there, Ken, that we need to stand firm against those strong pressures of temptation. It's not always easy. No, it's, it sometimes can be very hard, especially when you're in the world and most people are heading one direction and you're trying to head in the other direction. But what we have to really think about and look at is the long-term picture and that in the not-too-distant future, Jesus is coming back to take the overcomers home. That is true. Now, here I feel there's been a compromise. You may disagree. I believe that a compromise is a blending of, of the qualities of two different things or a concession of principles. So would you say there'd been a compromise here at Pergamon? Well, certainly with one group, maybe not the whole church, but this was probably a fairly influential group in the church. And they had definitely compromised because truth has no place with evil. And this was a mixture of evil and truth, particularly what these Nicolaitans was, uh, were teaching and practicing. True. Harvey, is there room for, for differences of opinion? Well, there is room for differences of opinion among Christians in, in some areas. But there is no room for heresy and moral impurity. Your town might not participate in idol feasts, but it probably has pornography, sexual sin, cheating, gossiping and lying. We've heard of those before, haven't we? Don't tolerate sin by bowing to the pressures to be open-minded. Yeah, that's, that's good counsel. Thank you. So not only to the church in those days, but to us today. All right, Lynn, can you tell me what was the situation of our next church in Thyatira? What warning does Jesus give them? Okay, well, we can read about Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2, verse 19, where the Lord says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Well, that's a pretty good commendation. (laughs) When we think about the prophetic part of the application of um, these messages, we'll see that this was a very um, zealous time when people understood the message of salvation and they, they, they developed their Christian experience. And obviously the Thyatirans were doing something the same. The great commendation. It was like love and faith provided the inner basis of the outward expression of service and patience, mm. joining it together. But I found, like you, it was interesting. The last was more than the first. Yeah. 
So the message to Thyatira is the only one of the seven that actually contained a recognition of improvement. If you, if you, you think about it, in spite of the difficulties of the churches there, they still experienced spiritual growth. On a personal level, and I'm not just talking about me, I'm talking about us as individuals, us in the panel and you as listeners. You know, very often when people come to Christ at first, they are exuberant. They're really excited and happy and full of joy and peace. But the problem is with some of these people, they seem to slip back. It's a bit like I heard the analogy last week where somebody was talking about marriage. When people get married at first, I think it was Harvey who mentioned that, yes, it's all very exciting and lovely, but after a while it becomes a bit ho-hum and humdrum. But the case with this particular church was that they grew, and that's what needs to happen with us as individuals. We need to grow more committed, we need to grow stronger in the Word of God, stronger in our faith and love. And so there's a good lesson here. Mm. I think we have a, an example here where the first church, which we looked at last week, Ephesus, the thing that God had against them was that they lost their first love, where Thyatira is going the other way. They seem to be improving in that respect. It was a definite improvement. Good point. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, we probably may need to uh, look a little bit more in details uh, about the message to this church, Tatera. Um, we haven't got time uh, on air to do that, but um, what I'd like to bring out is that this church covers the period uh, of uh, the Dark Ages. And uh, this church, they enforced if you like, among themselves and among the, you know, with their influence, to be part of the guilds. What that means, the uh, specific trades during uh, uh, this time. What that means, that the church was stepping out of their uh, call, uh, which the church represents God, represents the truth of God to be preached, revealed to the people. But they were making now that sort of compromise with the established uh, population in that area. And I think God has something quite uh, uh, to say about, uh, about this. As I said, we can elaborate a bit more on this, but maybe in the next uh, programs, because we wouldn't be able to do it mm-hmm. right now. Thanks, Nick. Yes, Lane. I'd just like to go back to that verse, Revelation 2, verse 19, talking about the Thyrotyrans, where it says... I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance. The book of James talks about faith. And James says this, Faith without works is dead. And here with these people, they demonstrated their faith by their works. It says, your service and your perseverance. That's all a demonstration of their love for the Lord and the faith that they had. Thank you, Len. It's not like they were trying to earn salvation. It was their love from the Lord that prompted it, wasn't it? Because we are talking also about the application of historical and prophetical. During this time, even though a small group of people, which God refers to, 
which uh, we call them sometimes remnant. remnant, they were doing, you know, okay, they tried to, to cope with the situation, but generally the church was formed from a larger group of people by that by uh, that time was not just uh, like in the early apostolical church where the group was just uh, small and just grew and grew here they have influence they were quite involved in the in the social activities also of the time mm-hmm. that's why i'm saying that this is the period of the church which covered the longest period in history Mm. From uh, from three hundred and something to uh, to one uh, one thousand and five hundred, you know, it's very long period of time for Thyatira. Yes, Helen. Um, when we go back to the Old Testament, before Jacob died, he got his sons to come to him, and he pronounced something very similar to what we're reading here in Revelation. He talks about this son, that he was good at this and bad at that, and and this son was known for that or the other. This, this um, record, uh, this report perhaps is a better uh, thing to say, reminds me very much of that, that this particular church was known for its faithfulness and its growth in its um, spiritual development. Mm, mm, good, good points. Now, we've heard about the good things, but what did Jesus have against this church? Did he have anything against them? Yes, we can say, if we read Revelation 2, verses 20 to 23, there is quite a bit said. Now, I'm reading from... Revelation two twenty to 23 Nevertheless I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols and I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Later on, I think it's Revelation chapter 16, we come across a character who's an immoral woman. And as far as I can understand, Jezebel was an immoral woman. Here, within this uh, context of this church and the the time period, which we uh, think of the uh, Protestant Reformation, there was still a rebellious and profligate woman, and, and, and that stands for a church really within the church organizational structure there was another movement another church if you like which is referred to here as Jezebel and anyone who reads the history of the Protestant Reformation and the conflicts that there were with the church of the day which happened to be the Roman Catholic Church I believe that 
in the prophetic application of this verse, as Nick was just alluding to a little bit before, it's talking about Roman Catholicism within the Protestant Roman Catholicism umbrella of the church. Yeah, the the name Jezebel is interesting because you might remember there was a pagan queen um, in the time of Israel called Jezebel and she was known and considered to be the most evil woman that had lived. And it's interesting that this name has been applied. I believe it symbolises the kind of evil that this woman was promoting, which was sexual immorality. I think, Ken, you had something you wanted to say. Sexual immorality has tremendous power to destroy families, churches and communities because it destroys the integrity in which those relationships are built. God wants to protect us from hurting ourselves and others. Thus, we have to have no part in sexual immorality, even if our culture accepts it. And I think what's important here, sometimes people think, oh, well, God doesn't want us to have fun and all this sort of thing. But Jesus loves everybody to an enormous amount, and he doesn't want anybody hurt for any reason. Yes, it hurts God, it hurts families, it hurts communities, it hurts churches, doesn't it? Yes, thank you, Ken. Lynn? Sexual immorality. Remember, there were the cities that God destroyed, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, because of sexual immorality. Mm. And I see very much a similar thing happening these days with the same-sex marriage laws and so on. When I was quite young, Anybody who slept with somebody else who they weren't married to was considered um, pretty bad. Now it's widely accepted. So I think the sexual immorality applies not just to what the Nicolaitans did with their free sex, but it applies to uh, homosexuality, lesbianism, and this, well, it's also free sex, I suppose you'd say. Mm. Mm. During this uh, study also we mentioned about uh, some symbolic applications and uh, talking about the sword, with two-edged sword, talking about the teaching of Balaam, talking about Jezebel and all these things, In particularly with this church, as I said a bit earlier, because the church reinforced for their members to be part of those groups. What that means, that they are involved in all sorts of festivals, all sorts of, uh, you know, gatherings, which most of them, under that uh, influence of Jezebel, had to do with immoral behavior. behavior. Mm. And that's why when the um, message to this church was what I have against you, is that you are not watching for that important thing, you know, to stay away from those those things. And we are talking now, Len, you just mentioned a bit earlier that in our time, for the, for the political correctness, we are tempted as a church or as a group or as Christians to be politically correct and not to say things about this group or that group. Is that what God wants us to do? Or God wants us to stand firm for the principles of what he told us. See, all these messages really, they may apply to a particular church, they may also apply to a particular time, but they also apply across the board. 
Now, not long ago, I was reading about the Burning Man Festival, which is held in um, United States of America. I think it's on in Utah, but I'm not sure anymore. Where it's supposedly a festival of music and fun, but what we've been reading about here applies in that situation. It's a festival of immorality. Uh, I'd just like to add something to that. Uh, when we're talking about the churches speaking out against immorality and same-sex marriage and and uh, all this sort of thing, we are not judging the people, neither is God judging the people. He's judging the acts that they do which are incorrect. So we do not have anything against these people, but it's what they practice that is incorrect. Thank you, Ken. Thank you. Okay, look, I hate to kind of push you on a bit, but let's move on to the next um, church that was mentioned here, the Church of Sardis. There was also a uh, situation there, and Jesus gave a warning. So can we move on to that one, please? Well, Mm -hmm. before we get on to that, you know, when you get warned, you get warned because whoever warns you cares. And God cares for his church. He cares for his people, and that's why he gives warnings. So here to the church in Sardis, it says, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds, but you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Well, just opposite the Thyatirans, who were commended for their growth and being alive and putting their religion into practice or their beliefs into practice. Here, this next group, just the opposite. They had a reputation of being alive. In other words, it was what they presented looked all very holy and good, but in actual fact, there was nothing behind it. They were spiritually dead yeah that's what i was about to say it wasn't so much the heresy it's that they were actually spiritually dead you know in spite of their reputation for being active sardis was actually infected with sin wasn't it if you look at it and its deeds were evil its clothes were soiled the spirit has no words of commendation actually for that church that looked so good on the outside but was corrupt on the inside jesus message to sardis also applies to every generation of Christians. There are Christians who always talk in glorious terms of their past, faithfulness to Christ. Unfortunately, these same Christians do not have to share much, have much to share about their present experience with Christ. Their religion is nominal, lacking the true religion of heart and genuine commitment to the gospel. Yeah, thank you. Ken, what if we find ourselves today in a church that's dead? If you find yourself in a dead church, make sure you preserve your own faithfulness. Ask God to intervene and help. And ask, seek others who are also believers and pray together for an awakening of your church. There's always people in churches who are faithful to God and always will be. And you need to seek these people out and uh, pray with them and have contact mm-hmm. with them. Thank you, Ken, for that counsel. I appreciate that. Yes, Lynn? In any church, a church is made up of a collection of individuals. So if it's a dead church, you've got a whole lot of dead individuals. But I also see this 
uh, as I rub shoulders with various people who are in various churches who seem to think that simply by going to church once a week or every now and again is enough. But according to this message here, it's not enough. Because if you just go and warm the pews, so to speak, it's not enough. No, it's not. You're quite right. Jesus actually gave them a warning. He also gave them some counsel, didn't he, to this church? I think it's in Revelation 3, 2. Would you like me to read yeah, that thanks, now? Yes, thanks, Lynn. Yeah. Uh, here's the counsel. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. So the counsel was, wake up. You don't know what you're doing. You've, you've gone to sleep on the job. That was Revelation 3, 2? Yes. Right. You must have a different version to mine, <laughs> I mm. think. Yeah, I do. That's true. Wake up. Um, I also read that they needed to remember, they need to look back to what they first first um, believed. Yes, Nick? And talking about look back and remember, what period of time in history do you reckon this apply to? Because it, um, it mentions, maybe I don't want to put you on the spot, but it mentions that uh, all these messages applies in, um, prophetically for all periods of time. And this is actually from the 1500s to the 1700s. We mentioned that at the very beginning but, too. Yeah, but yes. what's important, what happened in that period of time? Was the Great Awakening, was the start of Reformation. Reformation. And that's w what the verse is saying actually, you know, uh, you actually you came alive but you fall dead you know what happened with the reformation after a period of time i will just say something it's a you know a, a well-known saying that um during luther time the lutheran church formed and there were some other reformers coming you know with more truth with with more revealing truth and they where they went first as the disciples, they went to the established churches and they went to, those reformers went to the Lutheran church and the Lutheran church will say something like this, did Luther say anything about this? If not, we are not receiving it. Do you understand where they fall into? Into that lethargic and uh, legalistic or whatever you, you want to put it. Well, it's a bit like running a race. You get all enthusiastic in the start and then you sort of cut out, run out of wind and stop. And I think this has actually happened with a lot of the Reformation churches, and Nick has mentioned the Lutheran churches, they've gone so far. But there is more truth that they do not embrace and, and they don't practice. I've got the um, the Lutheran little catechism and I've read through it and I was amazed here these people say that they believe in sola scriptura but have stopped in the middle and haven't gone on they're I no longer growing in faith or evangelism are they just like this church back then it seems they that way. Yes. and that's very important what you just said Helen because uh, almost all of the churches you can read in between the lines that God is saying watch out you know, be vigilant, be uh, awake, not just uh, fall into into whatever s state of uh, being you can be. Uh, and that's with us also now. We may think that we live in a in a very um, 
freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of this and that, and we find in ourselves being very compliant. Mm. Well, we're on to another church. Okay, Philadelphia. Harvey, can you tell me what the situation of that church... We can. We could spend hours on every single church, couldn't we? And I'm sorry we have to sort of jump a little bit here, but we need to find out what the situation was the church in Philadelphia and the warning that Jesus gave them. Time is running out. Well, Thank in actual you. fact, there's not too much warning in, to the church in Philadelphia because Philadelphia, unlike Sardis and some of the previous churches, there's nothing really said against them. But there is advice given. In verses 8 to 11 of Revelation 3, it reads... I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one take your crown. That last part, Harvey, I find interesting because here's a reference to Christ coming quickly, isn't it? Yes. And and that was to be noted great that there was no rebuke. Yes. I think that um, we should mention something special here. It seems that during this era of time that this refers to, the second coming of Christ was hardly ever taught in the churches. I think if we consider the prophetic application, this is a special message for them. Behold, I'm coming quickly. You've lost sight of that. You need to regain that. And this actually did happen in that later era in the um, mid 1800s. Mm, it went from 1750 to 1844, I yeah. believe. Yeah, that's so true. And, and just to, to mention a bit more specifically, we, we are in the time of um, the Millerites. You know, when uh, yes. twice, you know, was even that, uh, you know, great disappointment. Uh, but in that period, Miller was the one who preached the second coming of Jesus Christ, even though he was uh, mixed up with uh, some dates there, but that's what the Bible, if we, if we put together these things, we see the application for that period of time. Yeah, thank you, Nick. Harvey, you've got something to say. Yes, I think a little bit more than that. I think it was a period of time of about a hundred years, but it was where the second coming of Jesus became a strong emphasis it was introduced. Miller was certainly one of them, but there were many of them in Europe. It happened in Europe. It happened in other places where previously the second coming of Christ was not being emphasized. And uh, it was almost as if there was an awakening to an understanding that Jesus was coming and not just coming, but coming soon. Mm, thank you for that. And, and that's a good lesson we can learn from that church, isn't it? They weren't large, they weren't even specifically influential, but they were pure and they were faithful. Also the message says, keep what you have. Why it's important to, to notify that thing, keep what you have. 
because that extends to our time. Because as was mentioned here, there, there were in history periods of time when people were awakened, you know, even in the olden days, you know, uh, Israel, sometimes they came fully back to God just for the... Uh, to fall back again, you know, <laughs> uh, into their uh, old days, you know. Uh, but now the message is keep tight on what you have mm -hmm. because that will be until I will come. What if I was a new believer, Harvey? Yes, if you, you may be a new, d new believer and feel that your faith and spiritual strength are little. Use what you have to live for Christ and God will commend you. I'd like to make a comment here as well, and that is where it says keep what you have, I believe that's a really important principle, and that is that there are truths that have come out, we could say, during the, the Reformation period. Certainly Luther presented truth in a different way. He's sola scriptura and a number of other issues. And down through the, the centuries, there's been many reformers who have come with other issues of truth don't drop those truths that have been presented but accept the new ones when they arrive as well thank you well now we're on to the last church again Laodicea from 1844 to the end of time Laodicea was one of the wealthiest of the seven cities it was known for its banking industry manufacturing of wool and it was interesting it was black wool and a medical school that produced eye ointment. So, Ken, can you tell us what was the situation of the church at that time? Sure, again, I'm going to read from uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. And really this... Uh, can you just read verse 16 for a start? Sure, yep. Please? Uh, the uh, first one that you said, 15. Sorry. Very, very sad message, I think. Uh, starting in verse 15, I know thy works, that thou art neither hot nor cold, I would that thou weren't hot or cold. Okay, well that actually, um, the background of that is that lukewarm water was familiar to the people of that time. You know, they, it fitted perfectly with their spiritual condition. The city ha actually had a problem with its water supply and at that time there was an aqueduct that was built to bring water to the city from the hot springs but by the time the water reached the city it was neither hot nor refreshingly cool and only lukewarm. The church had become as bland as tepid water that came into the city. And I thought that was, you know, they could relate to that. And of course, you know, who wants to drink tepid water? So what warning did Jesus give them? On that next verse, please, Ken. Yes, in verse 16. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Again, this is a, a really serious... Uh, uh, time and uh, event that's going to happen. Uh, Jesus is so disappointed with these people that they absolutely have no part in heaven. It was distasteful. It was repugnant, wasn't it? It's very, very yeah. sad and it's a real, real warning. And this is the church in our day, of course. This is where most of the world is today. Yeah. Len, I think you've got something to say on that one. Well, before I say what I was going to say, I'm going to say something else that I wasn't <laughs> going to say. Um, okay. I just think of, say, a marriage. If that marriage is neither hot nor cold, it's a pretty meaningless marriage. And um, what we can learn from this is that as far as our relationship with the Lord is concerned, it's, it's no good trying to follow God halfway, if you like. 
we have to be either on fire for him or against him, hot or cold. Thank you, Len. Absolutely. Okay, so now we've been through all the warnings. We've been through looking at the situation. But before we finished, and we need to go fairly quickly, we want to see that each message concludes with an appeal to hear the Spirit's message and with promises. We want to quickly go through promises because I believe this is the most encouraging part of the messages to the seven churches. So again, very quickly, let's go back to Smyrna. What appeal and promise was given very quickly? Okay. Len. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and here's the promise. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. In spite of tribulation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So what appeal was given to Pergamon and the promise? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I'll give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I'll give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name, written which no one knows except him who receives it. Thank you. So the manna, symbolic of life in Christ now and eternal life later. Jesus is the bread of life. He provides spiritual nourishment that satisfies our deepest hunger. The white stone with a new name, a bestowal of a special gift or honour. God will give a new name. God will give a new heart. Okay, what appeal and promise was given to Thyatira? And he that overcometh and keepeth my works on to the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and I will give him the morning star. Thank you. I think there's another text as well. Revelation twenty two sixteen. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you, and these things in the churches, I am the root and the offspring of David, and the bright and morning star. Thank you. The morning star appears just before dawn, doesn't it? When the night is the coldest and the darkest. And when the world is at its bleakest point, Christ will burst onto the scene. He'll expose evil with the light of his truth and bring his promised reward. So what appeal and promise was now given to Sardis? They or you will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot his name out from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. In other words, they'll be judged as righteous. They will be given eternal life. What a great promise that one was, wasn't it? Mm. White raiment being set apart for God and made pure, and also being listed in the book of life belonging to Christ. Okay, almost done. What appeal and promise to Philadelphia? In Revelation three eleven and 12, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I'll write on him my new name. Thank you. The crown and evidence of victory over the devil... The pillar of the temple shows us that the overcomer will hold a permanent, important place in the very presence of God. And the name of the city says that we will be citizens in that and have a right to be there. Okay, what was the promise and the appeal to... What are we up to? Laodicea. from chapter 3, verse 18. Mm. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear 
so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Now here's the promise. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. There is so much in that, and I'm sorry, listeners, that we have to cut it short because our time is out. But just quickly, the gold represents the spiritual riches offered as Christ's remedy for Laodicea's spiritual poverty, and he's offering it to us today. He will take the dross out of it, faith being tried and purified by the fires of affliction. The white raiment is the righteousness of Christ, in contrast to the black woolen clothes that the cities were famous for. The eye salve, that's heaven's antidote for this spiritual blindness. Its purpose is to open their eyes to their true condition, and this is the work of the Holy Spirit. Only through his convicting work on the heart can spiritual blindness be removed. You know, if the spiritual poverty of the Laodiceans were beyond hope, they would not have had offered gold by the true witness. If their spiritual eyesight was beyond remedy, he would not have offered them heavenly eyesight. And if their spiritual nakedness was beyond hope, he would not have offered his own white raiment. And I think, Ken, you've got something for us to finish up with. Yes, as the condition of the church's declines, as the rebukes of Jesus became more severe, the promises of Jesus abound more and more. The worse things get, the greater the grace and power that God exerts. The deeper the problem you may have in life, the more powerful is the grace of Jesus Christ. This message speaks as powerfully for us today as it did in ancient times. I'd just like to make mention, if you notice that the first church gets one promise, the tree of life, the second church got two promises, which was the crown of life and deliverance from second death. The third got three, hidden manor, a white stone and a new name. The fourth got four promises. The fifth got five. The sixth got six. Each church gets more promises than the church before. And the seventh church, Laodicea, the church of today, gets the loftiest promise of all to sit with Jesus on his throne. He is coming. He is coming quickly. And he's bringing his reward with him. Looking forward to that day. These messages that we've gone through today... Please, if you have the time, to, to sit down and study them and look at them because their message, my friends, is ours, our message. Although some of them, nearly all of them, received a rebuke, God also praised those groups for their early manifestation of faith. God wanted them to know that they were not without hope if they made a change so with us. I think because we're out of time, we'll have to leave the rest. But thank you, panel, for your part in, in the discussion today. And Ken. Would you finish with prayer for us, please? Absolutely. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we're so grateful to be here today to send your words out to all the listeners. We understand that this is a very heavy book and very deep, but we do pray that the listeners will take the time to search these things out, will get their Bibles out and look into it, and we would be more than happy to answer their questions if they contact us. We just pray the Holy Spirit may be rich with each and every one of them, and their eyes and their heart would be open to the living God. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.